You're listening to Decoding Healthcare Innovation with Carrie Nixon and Rebecca Gwilt, a podcast for novel and disruptive healthcare business leaders seeking to transform how we receive and experience healthcare. Welcome back to Decoding Healthcare Innovation. I am your co-host, Rebecca Gwilt, co-founder and partner at Nixon Gwilt Law, where we help digital health companies understand, plan for, and launch their products and services in the U.S. market, uh, among other things. Today, I'm looking forward to picking the brain of someone I send my clients to often, but who I rarely get a chance to learn from myself. She is a powerhouse with a background in mechanical engineering and a passion for working with female founders and innovators, which of course we love. Specifically, she helps digital health and femtech innovators all over the world patent and protect their intellectual property, which is the subject of today's pod. And when she isn't being an IP protector at work, she's advocating for women in technology with international organizations like Women of Wearables. Super, super excited. I'm fangirling. So for now, I will just Mm -hmm. say um, welcome. Welcome, uh, Jordana Mon, to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this has been great. I I love that I got your invite. So I'm so happy we're doing this. Yes, yes. Okay, so first, before we get into some substance, I was reading your bio in prep for our discussion, and I was just, you know, as a fellow lawyer, just absolutely blown away by the breadth of your pro bono practice. Um, I have such admiration for how much time um, you obviously devote to causes you believe in, namely at legal advocacy related to reproductive rights and civil rights, such an important topic right now. I'm interested, is that Um, Is that sort of pro bono work what led you to develop this sort of expertise around femtech? Um, No, I wouldn't say that. I think that in law school, I was really torn with either, you know, pursuing intellectual property law because I, you know, that was the point of going to law school after having, you know, struggling (laughs) or uh, enduring four years of mechanical engineering. Uh, I had, you know, wanted to put it to, you know, a legal practice. But then in law school, I realized there's so much you can do with um, a legal degree. And so I did a lot of, um, I, you know, worked at a clinic, it's called the Health Justice Project, which is just an amazing clinic at Loyola uh, in Chicago. And then I just made sure that I continued from there. So Femtech is, was kind of, or my interest in women's health, it kind of came out of when I uh, was, got pregnant with my first and didn't know anything about my body and then just really was just fascinated. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have that way of, sorry. It's, it's just interesting how that happens. You think like, I, I mean, I work in healthcare. I had the same experience as a, as a, as a first time mother. I was like, wow, I, I really, I really know nothing. Yeah. I'm like, how, how do I not know this? And, and I, we're not alone though, you know, like, and I have been reading so much, uh, you know, since I've really uh, gotten involved in femtech and then I'll still take that like online quiz that they have um, <laughs> online. It's like, how well do you know about women's health? And I still fail it. I mean, it's just like, yeah. what am I, I'm, yeah. I'm learning things. No, but there's just so much more to learn. And um, so, yeah. So, but, but of course, you know, the, it's so closely tied. I think Femtech so closely tied to repro- reproductive health justice. Women want choice over their health, right? Yeah. And whether that is, whether they decide to have a baby or not, or, um, you know, if they want choice in contraception or medical care. And Femtech provides that choice. These innovative ideas, you know, puts more choice on the market for women. So yeah, I yeah. see how it's really related, but I think my pro bono is just something that I've always wanted to just like keep going because I, I have that power to help. So, 
Yeah, it's a it's a great reminder for me and, and hopefully for other um, professionals out there that we don't have to be just one thing. It is not sort of uh, uh, choose this, not that. So I just I just love to see it. And um, I know it's totally unrelated, but but no, I just want to thank you so much for asking. Like I don't get about asked very often about it, and it's so important to me. So thank yeah, you. yeah, I love it. I'm I'm actually going to learn about the the organizations you you mentioned because they they do. Um, you know, impact in those areas is, is something personally important to me as well. So anyway, kudos to you. I just love to see it. I hope that others take inspiration for it. And and today we're actually going to talk about, uh, you know, IP issues at a, at, a, at, a, at a high level that impact all digital health companies, not just femtech companies. Mm-hmm. But I am interested, just one more thing, um, in whether there is something unique about the challenges for femtech companies when it comes to IP protection or whether, uh, you know, at the heart of them, uh, in terms of protecting their IP, it's sort of the same, the same as other other digital health companies. Um, so whether femtech's different, I think. So digital health can have its own challenges that are the same as, you know, whether femtech or not, because uh, you are running into these eligibility issues with the patent office, and we can talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that later. It's very very nuanced and it's very case specific, but generally femtech, I think. The challenge there might um, might be, and, and I've heard, you know, just from uh, different people in my network, different challenges they've come across uh, with the PTO. And it's just like not, it's being able to explain, I guess it's like the the miscommunication or the the not understanding the perspective of the woman with, if you ah. need like, a patent examiner. So it's, they might say like, hey, this is, you know, one of the, uh, one of the requirements for a patent is that it has to be not obvious. And so they will kind of put two things together that in a woman's perspective, it's like, no, 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 this is not, um, this is not an obvious combination of things. But in a male perspective, because of that, you know, disconnect or that, you know, inability to understand the woman, woman's perspective in the health uh, care uh, field or the lack thereof in women's health, I think that that can be a, a unique challenge. There's also, in terms of obviousness, it's like, okay, well, if it, I think a lot of really cool technologies could be just, you know, improving designs of existing things, but for the woman's body. So really, you know, important examples like the seatbelt, you know, so that could be considered femtech, you know, a seatbelt that is designed for a woman's body, because right now they're only designed for men, and it leads to, you know, a lot more injuries um, for women. Uh, even though men are more likely to get into car, car accidents. So, but anyways, because women's bodies are different. So someone was like, well, you know, someone I've spoken to was like, well, isn't, wouldn't it be obvious because we should have been designing for women? And I think that like, just because we should have been designing for women doesn't make it like ineligible for patent protection because you have to consider yeah. society and whether society is ready to, you know, make that kind of progress. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is this is sort of entrenched thinking that is in in for for just many years. I think things are changing, but for many years have been has been very, um, you know, male centric. And so the idea that that has that 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 is institutionalized in the way that people are reviewing patents is absolutely fascinating. I just hadn't thought of that before. Okay, well, I'm glad I asked the question because I have lots more to sort of like intellectually chew on after this. Um, and we should talk about how we change that, obviously. Yeah. Okay, so so let's dig in. I want to go over some key IP considerations for digital health companies, whether 
they're just launching their product or service in the marketplace, or they're more established and growing market share through new products or geographic expansion. And and I and I want to start with what we will not be getting in today into today. Um, IP IP is a term um, as 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 Jordana knows very well. It's applicable to lots of things, uh, patents and trades trademarks and trade secrets and confidentiality and publicity rights. And um, what I'd really like to focus on today is patent and trademark. These are the things that I get the most questions about, and I think these are the things that are the you know into which people have the least insight in general. They're more technical. And, you know, in, even even GPT-4 <laughs> can't exactly sort of give the, the broader perspective on this. So so I really want to focus on, on patents and trademarks today. And maybe, maybe, Jory, you can talk a little bit about what those two things are like at a high level. Yeah, uh, at a high level, trademarks protect your brand. So that's really important when you are about to start marketing your brand. Before you invest in a lot of money on all the marketing materials, you want to make sure that you can actually practice your trademark. Is that, you know, that's your trade name, that's your logo, uh, to make sure that no one in, you know, the same field is already there. So I think one of the main things that I might, you know, touch up on later is just, you know, having a good search beforehand, whether that's before you file an application or before you file or for register for your trademark. Uh, it's important to know what's out there so that you aren't investing a lot of money and then getting those rejections later at the patent and trademark office. And then um, and then high level patent, it is uh, gives you the right to exclude others from making, using, selling, importing uh, your invention and offering for sale. So it really doesn't give you necessarily the right to do those things, but it, it it excludes others from doing that. So it's really kind of a defensive measure to make sure that you know you protect your uh, life's work and and protect your investment into your into your you know digital health platform or device things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So so okay. So that's interesting. The the patent is not your right to do something. It's your right to exclude others from doing something. And I'm assuming that that is because a patent is not the, the patent for a device or I'm not going to use the right words here, but a patent says, you know, I, uh, you can't build this thing, but what if you come along and like your seatbelt example, you want to improve upon the thing. So you can't build the thing, but you can exclude people from improving upon it in the way you're improving upon it. I right? think, yeah, I think you're, you're on, you're, you're definitely onto it. So like I, my femtech example is like the menstrual cup. So I like to use that as a, a good example because it's, it's, uh, it's been around for a very long time. People can still get patents on it. And that's also, I forgot to mention, but there's also a design patent that could be really useful for um, your, your clients in digital health. But anyway, um, you can, you can't like, so if someone comes out and has patent protection over a cup that receives menstrual fluid, let's for, for example. Yeah. You came up with a really interesting way to remove that cup, um, whether it's like a, somehow a pulling or the material folds in a certain way, or it improves upon like the, the thing that is already protected. You ah. might not have the right to um, practice your invention of, or the pr protected invention, but you can get a patent on the way that you pull it down, you know, in combination with that. So, um, Yes. So for instance, if I wanted to build this um, improvement upon the menstrual cup, would I then have to go to the patent holder of the menstrual cup and say, I want to build the whole thing, not just the 
removable thing or the dis- or the new design. I need to license your patent, and then I can and I can exclude everybody from from building it in the way that I build it. Is that how it works? Yeah. So if 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 the part that is protected is exactly the same as is claimed in their patent, and you would be infringing, then yes, you would have to. Um, you know, talk with them and get a license uh, to that, but it wouldn't prevent you from filing for a patent application. Okay. Okay. I'm trying not to get too technical, but I got really interested here and for a second because I didn't, but I, I hadn't, I didn't have on my radar that there was um, that there would be interactions between patents, which Mm -hmm. seems obvious, but, but anyway, interesting, interesting. Okay. So the question that I get a lot is, is my XYZ even patentable? And I work with a lot of sort of software companies that that use open source software to build their product or they're delivering services in a particular kind of way and they think that that's unique and they don't want anybody to steal their idea. And they've heard, you know, casually that that's not even something that is patentable. What, what does that mean? How, how, do our, how, how, do, how do companies figure out whether what they have built is even patentable at all? Yeah, I mean, it's not an easy question for your, these clients because um, even Susan, my background's in mechanical engineering, and I don't deal with what they, we call 101 issues, which is the patent eligibility at, on a day to day basis, like so many patent attorneys do that work with software companies, machine learning, you know, with the machine learning technologies yeah, yeah. and everything, you know the gambit. Um, so I would say, yeah, it's hard and you need to, you know, talk to someone who can, you know, apply the facts of the law that's changing all the time, uh, to your fact specific case. So just generally, I wouldn't say software is ineligible because we have, there are plenty of software patents out there. I think that, you know, basically what is eligible is, uh, or, or I guess the, what is not eligible is a law of nature a natural phenomenon and an abstract idea. And a lot of times, um, uh, you know, I think with software, if it can be done by a like physician, for example. So if you take a lot of data and you use that data and make a diagnosis and apply it and say, okay, because you've, you know, I've received this data. Now this software is um, processing that data and, and analyzing it and spitting out the diagnosis that might not be eligible because it's really just replace, it's a computer replacing what a physician can do. So it has to be a little bit more than that. If you come up with a new, you know, uh, method of, um, of taking a measurement, then it could be eligible. So it has to be like a little bit more. And what a little bit more is, is really hard to uh, say like in general terms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even that information is valuable because I have heard blanket statements from a number of people that like, this software, the software is just not patentable. Um, So it's a, so, I mean, I think the takeaway is you got to ask, you got to ask an expert and it's, and it's important enough to do it. Mm -hmm. So, so when, when is the, what, if I was a company right now, I'd just be hearing dollar signs. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and I know that there's a lot of trade-offs for a lot of these companies when they are in the startup phase and, you know, hiring patent counsel, or hiring IP counsel is is rarely what I think what I have people come to me having already done. Um, it's usually like a quick Google search and then off to the races. Practically, like when is the right time to think about IP protection, whether it's patent or trademark, or or maybe maybe a better question is when when's the right time to really invest in it? I mean, I 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's important to to think about it right away, because if you disclose your idea uh, without a confidentiality agreement, then um, you have a year from that disclosure date, from that public disclosure to file for an application or you lose it. So really, what what does public mean? What is what's a public disclosure? Is that like a commercial or is that like I talk to my investors about it? You know, it could be it could be in like a public setting. And if your investors aren't covered by confidentiality agreements, then there's a maybe an argument there that it was a public disclosure. If you tell your idea to, you know, uh, like a small party in your backyard, that would be a public disclosure. If you okay. are um, practicing it without even, you know, without it being like considered experimental, and there are a bunch of factors that kind of, you know, determine whether it's experimental or not, but um, then that could be a disclosure. And there's this famous case that we, you know, learn in law school about um, this uh, corset manufacturer that created a new corset and had his wife oh, wear a corset. Uh, I know it's and it's the. Terrible technology. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I'm not, I'm not too upset that he didn't, you know, wasn't patent. I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, so she wore it under her clothes um, and no one saw that she was wearing it, but she wore it around in public. But it was a year after I think he tried to file for a patent application and that was considered a public disclosure. So even though people didn't see it, uh, she was wearing it in public. She was using it. So wow. okay. use could be. So, um, all right. So you, you say I'm doing this thing in a public setting, you get the, the, the clock starts and you have one year to file a patent. And what happens after one year? It's not patentable. You can't file a patent application on it. Yeah. Wow. So you are barred and the risks of, uh, of filing anyway, and then get run, going through the patent office and not disclosing that, uh, could make, render it ineligible later. So someone could challenge it and be like, okay, well, here's a publication that you wrote about, like, all the things that you, you know, have gotten patent protection for was in this publication over a year ago. You know, you take that to court and your and your patent is killed. So it's not even worth that risk because of all the expense that you've gone into sure. um, uh, just investing in the patent protection and then the litigation afterwards. So it's and it's a really important and, and, you know, especially for patent attorneys, we have a duty to disclose. I mean, inventors have a duty to disclose, too, but we take that very seriously. Uh, so if we know of uh, either um, some like a previous disclosure or um, even of prior art, that's really could be, you know, considered damaging. We have to disclose that to the patent office. Um, mm-hmm. so and, it, the, and the patent protection doesn't last forever, right? Right. Uh, it's 20 years from filing. That's for a utility patent. For a design patent, it's 15 years from uh, date of grant. Okay. Okay. And I think I oh. would like to talk about quickly about digital about design patents for um, digital health companies, because even yeah, if yeah, they are sure. protecting software and let's just say it is ineligible. And again, I would, I would not just say, Oh, I, you know, my invention is in software. It's ineligible. I would not say that. But the, if you could create like um, interesting graphical user interface for the app that you are using for, you know, that can be protected under design patents. And so that is a cheaper way of, of doing it or of getting patent protection. And that's really just the ornamental design of, of like the display screen that might be on your phone or your, or your watch, if you have like a smartwatch or something like that. Sure. Um, and so that is, has been a way to protect the user interface for some applications. Gosh, that's super interesting because, you know, in my space, 
what I see a lot is reuse of that kind of thing, right? I'm going to look at my competitors and then I'm going to build this and it's going to look, you know, it's going to save me some time because that's not really the point of my service, right? The website's the website's just the interface and, and what's really important about it is the, the way that we, you know, the, what our device does or what our, our clinical outcomes are, or what have you. Right. But, but that's really interesting that, that, that that's something that they would need to think about um, that just the sort of the unique view into the, you know, the, the, the unique view that someone has when they find them on the internet, that that could be something that's protected by a design patent. Tell me, tell me what a design patent is. It's just, is it just for things that you can see or is it, is it, is it more than that? Yeah. It's, it's really just the ornamental appearance of something. Ornamental appearance. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so if you have an animation, you can even protect it, like how an animation changes over a couple of screens. Um, And if you have an interesting way or an aesthetically pleasing or sleek design of how to deliver a certain diagnosis, like that could be a, you know, something that you'd want to protect so that other people don't, um, you know, take that. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. And, and okay. So, so what does, what does an IP protection strategy, just, just talking about sort of patent, let's, let's narrow it. What Mm -hmm. is an IP protection strategy look like for, us like an early stage, like a startup company versus a more mature company that is sort of expanding or, or is there a difference? Yeah, there totally, there can be for sure. I mean, there's definitely some overlap uh, and it, it just depends on the, the business goals of the company. So with startups, I find that they're looking for just getting into the office. USPTO is a first to file system. So it's not necessarily first to invent, it's whoever's in the door first. So if they are about to disclose it um, at a trade show or to, you know, prospective and, you know, investors, and they want to make sure that their patent is, you know, in the office, uh, they are looking probably at a non-provisional or provisional application. A provisional application does not get examined by the uh, office, but it kind of saves your place in line with the patent office so that your date uh, is in stone. And then when you can file a year later for a non-provisional, which then gets examined. And within that year, I find that, you know, most, it, it could, again, could be both clients, uh, types of clients, but that can give someone a year to kind of market their idea around, see if there are, is any interest before they really invest in the back and forth, the prosecution part of, uh, of the patent application process. So because, you know, that could be a, a number of rounds of, you know, back and forth with the examiner. So that, you know, which is an investment in itself. So I think there's, you know, there are different reasons why someone would want to file, you know, a provisional, uh, buy them some time uh, to see if there's any interest or investment before they file the applicant non-provisional. That it's, 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 well, what it's making me think of is, you know, companies for whom the development of the sort of the MVP takes a year in itself. And during that time, they're like building it and they're yeah. getting feedback from uh, uh, their network and they're, they're doing, um, you know, customer evaluations. And it sounds like what you're saying is if they don't file that sort of notice that if their product takes a year to develop before they get to their MVP, they, they could have told already that not told, but they could have uh, exhausted already that year-long protection for patent. Is that 
Is that the case? So I, um, and I, I might not be understanding the question, but what can happen is, yeah, over a year, a lot can change. And even through the patent process, you know, so you, cheap you know, people keep tweaking their designs to right. come up with something. So that's why it's important that to um, talk to a patent attorney when you want to file a provisional. You can file, anyone can file a provisional application with the PTO. It could be a slide deck, really. It could be, you know, it doesn't have to be okay. a ton of stuff. The requirements okay. aren't the same as non-provisional. But a patent attorney will make sure that the claims are as broad as possible to cover all possible different iterations. We'll talk to, you know, mm -hmm. the invention, you know, inventor and be like, okay, well, where do you see this going? You know, wh where are some, you know, what are the extra bells and whistles that maybe you'd want to add onto it so that you can cover it? You can still have a, a provisional disclosure that could cover iterations down the line. And that that's not always the case. You know, there's going to sometimes it's like, okay, we are went in a completely different direction. That's okay. You okay. can file a new application on it. So you don't need like des detailed design diagrams of what the thing is going to be when it is the thing. It can just be when you say provisional, it's I'm this is my idea. Here's the kind of thing I'm building. Yeah. I just want to like save my place in line. Yeah. And I think for a provisional, the, especially if you're doing it yourself, figures are really helpful because you can rely on figures even if you don't describe it in the description later to amend your claims. Um, and, and that's not always that's not the same abroad. So the U.S., we can really rely on the figures. So detailed figures can still really help, but, you know, it's important to... But if you don't have them, you can yeah. still enjoy the collection. Um, yeah. Uh, it, as long as it's like a robust uh, <laughs> detailed description. I know it's hard for me to be like, oh, you just put I some... Know, like two, yeah, I know. It's like two lawyers being like, well, <laughs> it depends. But I do want to say for like a, a big company, something that you know, a small company might not be thinking of, though there are for sure. Um, and I've talked to some, but is global protection. There are strategies that you want to think about early on about like where you want protection, you know, and, and, and to make sure that you don't uh, prevent any um, filings later on because you've made a disclosure. So in Europe, uh, there's an absolute novelty requirement. So you know, they can't be like in the US, you can publish a paper on your um, on your invention and then file an application, you know, within that year. But in Europe, if they have if they have that publication, like you, it has to be a first filing. So they have to rely on a US filing. And I could be getting this a little muddled up. Uh, I don't practice European uh, patent law daily, but, but there are, you know, considerations that you have to make. Yeah, I think it's a good point to, to pay attention to it. I mean, we're all observing digital health become more global in nature. And so, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to know whether international, whether this there's this same sort of um, uh, public disclosure restriction for uh, IP protection in other countries. And if you if you publicly disclose it in the U.S., is that public disclosure overseas? It's all it's all good questions yeah. to ask. Mm -hmm. and, um, and generally powerful. it is <laughs> so uh public yeah. disclosure can if it can be found by a patent office abroad then yeah um it's something to think yeah. about super interesting super mm -hmm. interesting okay so so uh what uh, I, i'm interested in just so i uh can crystallize in my mind the 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 potential impact of failing to put together an IP strategy from the beginning. Do you have an example, not naming names, of course, of um, sort of an example of, of, of a time when a, a digital company, a digital health company could have 
sort of could have avoided dis- disaster by implementing an IP strategy and like what does that look like like what you know what is the impact to sort of not getting this right yeah so there was um uh, you know i i kind of adopted um a case later on in um in pro- patent prosecution so this was after the provisional was filed the non-provisional was filed uh and then when we were looking at prior art that the examiner found we found that it was um you know something to do with the, the disclosure date and it was the patent owner's Whoa. um previous disclosure and so you know the 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 dates are there um we can't overcome you know something if you disclosed it and didn't file something within a year then that's 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 going to bar you from getting a patent so a lot of time and investment you know went into this because the inventor was not upfront about when they first publicly disclosed their invention and, and you know it could be they didn't understand the the rules uh you know what a public disclosure is and what that means and sure. um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of money can be lost uh, because, you know, if you keep going with it and then the patent office finds your own disclosure. And then and then what happens? Right. So so then the whole all your competitors know they can build exactly what you built and they can sort of replicate it. That's sort of what happens. Oops. There's no like public announcement about it. But yeah, you don't have any protection over that. So. Yeah, I'm so sure it impacts have, the value of the company. Yeah, so like when you have a provisional patent filed, you can put patent pending on your products, but as soon as that's abandoned, you know it's it's you can't yeah. have you can't say that it's a you know provisional you know or patent pending anymore. Yeah, I mean my my what my learnings from today are that this is um, super complicated. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a DIY thing to do for companies. Uh, but that there are that there is value in actual consultation around this, right? It doesn't sound like there's one pathway. It sounds like you should be able to go to someone and say, "Okay, well, here's my goals, and here's what I'm doing, and here's my accurate, um, truthful disclosure about when people first heard about this," and and you know, work with someone to put together like a custom strategy around this, and and you sort of how you how you. Um, how you protect the the thing that you spent all this time building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Got it. What is the most important thing that a company can do right now if they're just getting started, if they've, if they've done nothing? Of course, contact an attorney. But like, what mm-hmm. what is a thing they could do like today that would put them in a better position than they were yesterday if they hadn't gotten started yet? Yeah, I would do... Um, there's, there's a lot of resources, uh, like with the USPTO for inventors, so if you're, you know, for doing your own searching or even just using a Google search, uh, Google patent search, you can find out pretty fast if someone has your, you know, trademark, you know, the name, the name of your company. Um, and if they're in the same kind of area that you're in, if they're also a digital health company, you know, selling the same like goods or services as you are with the exact same name, you know, that might be um, a problem that you can find out right away. And before you invest a lot into your brand, uh, same thing with patent, you know, it, it's hard. It can be difficult to read the claims of a patent if you're mm-hmm. not familiar with them, because uh, they just—it's just—it's um, a lot of legal uh, language. But you can do some searching, which could save some time and money for you. You know, money in terms of investment, but also um, you can kind of 
have an idea of where you'd like to go and, and give you confidence in that. Yeah, I can pursue this because I don't see anything out there. And I've, I've really looked. Yeah. I mean, this is good advice. I, I've had a number of, um, a number of, of clients come and say, you know, we have to redo our entire, we just spent $50,000 on marketing and, you know, we got a letter <laughs> that mm-hmm. says, um, Hey, that's my company name. You can't do that. And so even, even in those small ways, I think it's a great point. Just, just Googling around, going to the USPTO, finding their free, free resources, um, just for some early assurance that, uh, that you don't need to make a, a big pivot. And then, you know, the other thing that I've learned today is that there are, there are some options for companies who may not, for whom their, their product may not be protectable, but there's still a, there's still a way to protect it, um, through something like a design patent or something like that. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I hadn't, I hadn't, um, known that before. Anything else before we close that you, that, that you want to share with our listeners, Jordana? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I enjoyed this conversation. I think, you know, you, you distilled it very easily. Uh, so, you know, your clients are lucky to have you that you can just be like, Oh, well, (laughs) It's definitely not, it's definitely no. not my area. Well, but I, but I, yeah, go no, ahead. No, 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 nothing. So I will put your, I will put your information, your contact information in the show notes. Jordana does publish on these topics. I would absolutely follow her on LinkedIn and thank you so much for listening to decoding healthcare innovation. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Decoding Healthcare Innovation. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And as always, you can check out all the links and resources in the show notes. Find out more about our work in healthcare at nixonquiltlaw.com. And we will see you next time. Thank you so much, Jordana. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Decoding Healthcare Innovation. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more about Carrie, me, or Nixon Gwilt Law, go to nixongwiltlaw.com or click the links in the show notes.